Welcome to A New Republic, an oral history of the Indian Constitution. Episode 3, A Nation in Flames. Last time we left off 30 years or so after the Government of India Act of 1858. By this time, India was now an official part of the British Empire and Indians were British subjects. Today we pick up the story a few years after that. And we stand at the cusp of two centuries. On the one hand, we have the 19th century, a period of unprecedented political, cultural and scientific upheaval. The second half of that century in particular was tremendously fertile. England celebrated what was called the Victorian Age. France, especially Paris, called it the Belle Epoque or the Beautiful Period. On the other side of the cusp, we have the 20th century, a century that would see two cataclysmic military conflicts in quick succession. In many ways, you could say that the realities of the 20th century ripped to shreds the idealism of the 19th. But for the purposes of our history, this period starts with the death of a very important person. That was a few bars of music from The Funeral March, a composition by Frédéric Chopin. On January 22nd, 1901, Queen Victoria died, aged 81, at Osborne House on the Isle of Wight. This piece of music was played a few days later during her funeral procession in Windsor. Now, this might seem odd today, but many historians say that Queen Victoria enjoyed tremendous loyalty amongst her Indian subjects. Some historians even say that it is after Victoria's death that the nationalist movement in India, and especially the extremist faction of the nationalist movement, really kicks off. But Victoria's death is just one piece of a very complicated puzzle that tells the story of our next piece of legislation, that is the Indian Councils Act of 1909. I'm going to tell you the story of the Indian Councils Act in two parts. In this first part, today, I'm going to tell you about the political and social context in which this act came to be. And in the second part of this, uh, this story, in the next episode of this podcast, I'll tell you about the legislative content in the bill and how it changed government in India. As far as the context is concerned, I can break up the pieces of the puzzle into three buckets. The first one is a number of political developments in Great Britain. The second one is the state of the nationalist movement in India and other developments in this region. And the last one is a few international developments that play a key role in the Indian nationalist movement at this point in time. Now, first, let's look at Great Britain. In 1905, the Liberal Party won the elections in the United Kingdom and formed the government. The Prime Minister at the time was Sir Henry Campbell Bannerman, a man once called Britain's first and only radical Prime Minister, until, I suppose, um, mad Prime Minister Boris Johnson has his chance. Bannerman represents a political party, the Liberals, who believe in free markets, greater self-government for the colonies, and in general frown upon British imperialism. One of the first things they do on coming to power is to appoint John Morley as the Secretary of State for India. John Morley, like his party, is a Liberal. And one of his first priorities on coming to office is to initiate legislative reform in India, especially reform that gives the natives greater control over their own legislative lives. However, in a quirky twist of fate, shortly before the new government comes into power, 
the conservatives who led the previous government appoint the new viceroy for india and he is a, a splendid conservative politician by the splendid double barrel name of gilbert elliot murray kinnanmount better known as the fourth earl of minto together this somewhat disparate pair of administrators one conservative and one liberal were responsible for what are eventually called the morley minto reforms something every indian school child will know by name if not by detail and it is these reforms that find legislative shape in the form of the indian councils act of 1909 there is however one final piece in the british context we need to be aware of and that is the state of the irish problem in britain remember it is still many years before the republic of ireland is formed in 1921 what we see at this period is whenever the issue of self government in india comes up the irish parliamentarians all vote heavily in favor of the indians and later you will see that irish extremist movements also begin to cooperate with indian extremist movements the situation in india meanwhile is poor both morley and minto had inherited something of a mess from the previous administration there was unrest all over india some of this unrest was the general dissatisfaction of a colonized people while the rest of it was precisely because of lord curzon's wretched partition of bengal now lord curzon the viceroy immediately preceding lord minto has always been a divisive character in history in india curzon is chiefly remembered and often reviled for mishandling a series of famines and for instigating the partition of bengal in 1905 in britain he is remembered as a self-important pompous man prone to making enemies from what i read this reputation seems to have been very richly deserved but curzon wasn't all bad for instance some of his letters indicate that he was constantly worried about the way in which british officers and landowners treated the natives he was particularly concerned about the way europeans got let off by courts for crimes against indians yet it was under his watch that indian extremism begins to get a real foothold and it was in the closing days of his tenure that the moderate faction in the indian national congress began to grow unpopular the policy of partition in bengal in particular fueled this fire of extremism the partition of bengal has traditionally been portrayed as an example of the british tendency to divide and rule in this case the british are often accused of trying to drive a wedge between the hindu and muslim populations initially in bengal and later all over india I think this gives the British a little more credit than they are due because initial British records indicate that the partition of Bengal came out of a genuine inability to govern such a large province. However, later the British realize that the partition is a wonderful tool to make sure that the Hindus and the Muslims don't cooperate in the nationalist movements. So yes, later they do start milking the communal overtones of the partition. But in the beginning I don't think that was their vision. By 1905 however it had begun to unleash a lot of anger and a lot of violence all over the country. I don't want to delve into the uh, details of the genesis of this extremism right now but the feeling I get is that many Hindus were tremendously upset at the partition of Bengal. They felt that the policy was disproportionately favorable towards Muslims. One Bengali historian says that the partition policy had the effect of unsettling many hindu landowners in that part of the country and of course the extremism has different local nuances in different parts of the country as well eventually what happens 
is that uh, several uh, nationalist movements launched several violent attacks against British administration. Meanwhile, there is a simmering discontent and a simmering animosity between Hindus and Muslims that is not as violent but is every bit as intense. This simmering discontent has profound implications for Indian politics and uh, Indian geopolitics in the decades to come. However, there is one more reason for this growing unrest and that was education. Minto himself later wrote about this in a letter. He said, and I quote, It was no question of the terrible military mutiny of half a century ago repeating itself. The danger rose from a mutiny not of sepoys about greased cartridges, but of educated men armed with modern ideas supplied from the noblest arsenals and proudest trophies of English literature and English auditory. Now, some of the earliest Indians began graduating from universities in India by around the 1870s. By the early 1900s, many of them were prominent lawyers, civil servants and journalists. Naturally, some of them began wondering why they didn't enjoy the same freedoms in India that the British were enjoying back home. After all, if you remember, Victoria had proclaimed in the November of 1858 that Indians enjoyed the same rights as any British subjects anywhere. Now, for years in the late 1890s and early 1900s, these dissatisfied Indians found an outlet for their frustrations in the Indian National Congress, which was still largely moderate. Moderate Congress leaders like, for example, Gopal Krishna Gokhale were widely respected not just in India, but in fact, even in London. However, it's important to understand that movements like the Congress at this point were not asking for complete independence or Purna Swaraj. Many of them, many, many educated Indian elites were only hoping for self-government within the British Empire. But the partition of Bengal changes all that. Suddenly, leaders like Bal Gangadhar Tilak in Maharashtra, Lala Lajpatrai in Punjab and Bipin Chandrapal in Bengal are no longer satisfied with the moderate Congress approach to the British. Even Indians who are hitherto somewhat reasonably disposed towards the British began to change sides. One particularly interesting activist in Bengal at this time is a certain Aurobindo Ghosh. After studying in London, Ghosh applied to join the Indian civil services. Now, there are two versions of what happens next. One version says that he cleared the written test but failed the horse riding exam. The other version says that he did not turn up at all for the horse riding exam because by then, Ghosh had no intention of serving the British. Whatever be the reason, by 1907, Ghosh was back in Bengal working closely with a radical organization called the Anushilan Samiti. The Samiti's aim was to mobilize Bengalis and to terrorize the British administration. In 1907, they even went so far as to send an Indian, Hemachandra Das Kanungo, to Paris. There, Kanungo was to learn bomb-making and strategies of clandestine organization from French and Russian anarchists. Kanungo later returns to India and helped establish a bomb factory and bomb-making school near Kolkata. Which brings us to the last bucket of co-conspirators, if you will. Around this period, British intelligence had been receiving numerous reports that Indian extremists were receiving a substantial amount of support, both financial and uh, in terms of uh, mentorship and tutoring, from extremists all over the world. For instance, I mentioned before that Irish extremists were interacting with uh, Indian extremists, not just in the UK, but in the US and quite possibly in France as well. 
in fact there are even americans who are believed to be uh, working with indian extremists one interesting example of this is a lawyer based in new york called myron phelps phelps establishes an organization called india house which is purportedly established to help indian students moving into the us but british intelligence believes that he is in fact uh, using the organization to teach them sedition phelps later even writes a series of articles on extremism and on indian independence in the hindu this adds on piles on to the number of things that the british need to worry about now at this point there's one very simple question why didn't morley and minto simply call off the partition of bengal after all curzon had only announced the partition in the july of 1905 minto took over in november 1905 they could have easily called the whole thing off with minimal loss of face money or people the problem of course as always was one of posture minto was afraid that if they listened to the extremists now and called off the partition of bengal what would prevent indians from turning extremist again the next time they wanted something done so in a very poorly thought out move and what would turn out to be a bad decision minto stood firm and convinced other members of the liberal government in london to stand by his side unfortunately this would do nothing to solve any of minto's problems pressure was being heaped on him from all directions in india he had homegrown radicals to worry about and in london he had a secretary of state who demanded to see reform minto's efforts that followed were broadly of three types first he tried to infiltrate and dismantle organizations such as the anushilan samiti dozens of radicals were packed off to the cellular jail in andaman many were hanged this only helped to make the organizations even more radical one samiti activist who leaked information to the british was later found decapitated by a railway station in kolkata secondly minto tried to shore up the position of the moderates in the congress he did this by promising reform after reform that gave natives greater participation the moderates used these promises to fight for time but eventually the two factions of the congress fell out this did nothing to help both factions the radical faction simply got singled out and dealt with by the british while the moderate faction began to lose all popular support minto's third strategy was to drive the wedge between muslims and hindus even deeper his idea was simple by persevering with the partition of bengal and by maintaining that it was good for muslims he hoped to keep them away from the nationalist struggle some reports indicate that uh, minto's uh, efforts now clearly a divide and rule was successful one british administrator in bengal observes ironically enough that the only group of muslims that routinely turned up for nationalist meetings organized by uh, organizations like the anushilan samiti were the wahhabis in any case by 1906 the all india muslim league was established now the only thing minto had to worry about was how to deal with morley back in london and this he did by dragging his feet on all constitutional reforms it is both excruciating and quite hilarious to read their letters during this period morley constantly begs for drafts and suggestions while minto promises to get back to him as soon as possible and then does nothing for 3 months eventually the collaborate to produce the indian councils act of 1909 people back in britain are happy but in india the disappointment remains the act itself does very little to temper the extremism the credit for that goes to two things first the first world war and secondly the emergence on the scene of a certain lawyer from gujarat 
In the next episode of this podcast, we will look more deeply into the legislative context of the Indian Councils Act of 1909 and its constitutional legacy. Take care and see you then. Thank you.